This is Transistor.fm. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Excited to see uh, all these Ruby talks that just went live. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Today, we have a special guest on the Ruby Blend. His name is Julian Rubish. Welcome, Julian. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a freelance Ruby developer from Vienna, Austria, which is uh, right in the center of Europe. Well, I'm, I'm a kind of a, a chameleon. I studied uh, a branch of, of computer science that I don't even know uh, the exact English translation of, probably something like media computing. So very much video codec stuff, audio processing, obviously, because music is like my second passion. Well, my master's thesis was about algorithmic composition. And of course, web played a big role there too. So those things have always like interconnected for me. And um, I, I consider myself as much an artist as an engineer. Actually, I also did study computer music afterwards. So I'm a studied artist, if you like. And I'm often been been asked, well, how does that fit together at all? And I can only ever say that that's the exact, exact same thing for me. I mean, the creative process is is the exact same. I go about composing music, which is my thing. I, I'm an electric composer. In the exact same way, I approach putting together a Rails app. It's even this term composition from Latin componere, putting together stuff. Is actually the same. Like we have a composition pattern in programming and in making music, it's actually exactly the same. You try out different uh, little snippets, you put them together, see how, how they connect together, how they work with each other, how they interface. And yeah, well, that's how I would uh, see and define myself and my approach to uh, programming. So how long, how long have you been programming professionally? 13 years. Okay. And how long with Ruby and Ruby on Rails? Not too long. That was 2015. I think uh, Rails 5.0 had, had just come out when I only got into Ruby and Rails. And that has to do with the fact that I, after, after university, I, I stayed there for like five or six years as a researcher. So actually my whole start of the programming career was more an academic one. And I had to deal with more academic software like R and, and MATLAB and Python a little bit and Java. And then I got into freelancing and a couple of fellow guys here in, in, in Austria called me and said, hey, we need to help on this uh, little Ruby project, uh, Ruby and Rails project. Would you mind jumping in? And I thought, ah, I don't know. Rails, it's, it's such a, it was intimidating. I, I was scared, actually. And it took those friendly fellows, shout out to Fritz, Wolfgang, and Christoph at this point, to convince me actually to, to give Rails a go. And I can say that the, the learning curve for Rails, not, not so much for Ruby, because I got syntax pretty fast, but the learning curve for Rails uh, was pretty steep at, at the beginning. And hadn't it been for those mentors, I, I, I don't know if, if I had taken that step. I mean... I can see how it can scare people off and how it can be 
interesting for for JavaScript developers from from the front end to kind of extrapolate their thing. Then they know the basic uh, JavaScript, and well, it doesn't take so much of fantasy to go from uh, programming JavaScript in the front end to start uh, writing an ExpressJS app. You end up with lots of duplication and code that isn't very readable in in many cases. But I think that where is the golden path at the very beginning is is a very steep one. Yeah, there's a couple of really neat ideas there that I want to uh, kind of dig into. The first one is just your observation about uh, the relationship between music and programming, and or or any type of artistic endeavor and programming that that programming itself is an artistic act. I think that's a pretty interesting topic to explore. And I've you know in my career I've I've worked with a lot of folks that have come from musical backgrounds or artistic backgrounds, and they definitely bring an element of creativity and kind of this architectural mind. Maybe it's this composition, this idea of composition of of kind of orchestrating multiple components all working together and and playing nicely and and being able to have a holistic view of the system as a whole. I don't know. That's kind of a cool observation and something that I think a lot of people have have noticed uh, with programming it being a creative endeavor. Paul Graham has an an article or even a book. I think some of his blog posts got rolled up into a book called painters and hackers or hackers and painters. And there's a, there's a great post where he kind of likens, you know, programming to, you know, all of the artistic disciplines rather than engineering disciplines. It's, it's pretty interesting. I may jump in at this point um, because, you know, my, my second programming identity, if you like, is about visual programming and visual programming is, is very, I would say, popular in the artistic community because, um, well, in, in the, at least in the, in, in the sense that um, in, in the electronic music and electroacoustic uh, music world, because you have these little objects, these little boxes, you connect to each other and it symbolizes the data flow between them. And that sort of also informs my Ruby style programming and in general, because this whole idea of, of message passing from one object to the other gets a very visual uh, representation because if you connect each box to each other, you get a total uh, chaotic patch, as it's called. And you wouldn't, for the life of you, see what it's doing. So you have to be very disciplined about what object talks to which, which is exactly the the idea of message passing between objects in, in Ruby. I also find it really interesting that you know, as an experienced programmer, when you first encountered Rails, it, it was intimidating to you. But you did have some good mentors and friends, it sounds like, uh, to kind of help you along. Was that project a, um, an existing Rails application or was it, a new, was it a new application that you were building? It was, in fact, an existing application that needed some additional small features, but they didn't have the time to do it themselves. They knew about my general expertise and that I was, they believed in me that I was going to get to grips with Rails. And we did a lot of code review and stuff uh, because I, of course, if you touch Rails for the first time, there's so much magic along the, the concept of path helpers. It freaked me out. I, I mean, it was such a great thing. I, I had never seen such a thing in my life um, before and all due to the metaprogramming capabilities of Ruby. But I didn't have the faintest idea of how to put them together or where to look them up, et cetera, et cetera. So, it was probably good that it was an existing project, so I could 
look at structures uh, that were already there and extrapolate uh, from there. That was probably for, for the best. Yeah, it seems like you know, your, your reference to message passing and kind of orchestrating things through messages being transmitted between objects with Ruby would somewhat align with you know, the visual programming that, that you were uh, discussing earlier. So Ruby may not, may not have seemed so intimidating by itself, but Rails, I guess it was the, the metaprogramming that, that was happening there that where it just felt magical. You weren't even sure how certain things were, were even coming together or happening. Is that, is that really what drove the intimidation? Yeah, um, I mean, Rails has this general, uh, what do you call it, this magic that happens in between router and controllers and somehow your controller actions map to the views, et cetera, et cetera. If you never have seen something like, uh, well, back then, I think the responders gem wasn't really extracted. I, I don't remember. But for example... Like one year ago, I, I had to refactor a project from so that accessible to, to strong, strong params. I hadn't ever known that there was something before strong params, you know. All of a sudden, I started seeing patterns everywhere. And that, that's when it clicked eventually. That's interesting about the strong params because I know that there was something before strong params, but I have never seen it. So I'm sure... That's funny, yeah. I'm sure Nate, you could you could elaborate on that, but I'm pretty happy with strong params. Yeah, I mean, strong params was a, a very nice addition. Before it was just kind of up to you to to either like sanitize the params or apply some security. I mean, back in the day, GitHub had a major bug that was related to something uh, similar to strong params or the lack of strong params, where uh, you could I think you could essentially drop into uh, someone else's account because it was just uh, freely accepting the parameter that was that was being passed. That's interesting. So Julian, so you got into Rails and you learned Ruby, and I assume now you like it, even though it is, like you said, it's very magical. and having mentors kind of help you along that path is definitely something that I have basically become the product of because i I've had several mentors, Nate, including. And I, I definitely wouldn't be here without it. And I learned so much of that Rails magic from those mentors. But now that, what have you been doing in Ruby recently? Or kind of what do you use Ruby for right now? Are you working for a company? Or are you freelancing? Or kind of what's your day-to-day use of Ruby? Well, as I said in, in the introduction, I'm a freelancer. And I do almost exclusively Rails projects now mostly for the local economy, but in very different use cases. One actually even related to the, to the COVID situation. It's going to help restart the Western Austrian economy. There are others. I have many projects that still kind of touch on my media computing background. Like I do a lot of well, customized stuff for trade fairs and so on and so forth, like uh, digital signage stuff, et cetera. Uh, and I, these mostly end up as some kind of electron apps, desktop apps, et cetera. But most of the time with a Rails background and sort of living the uh, hybrid approach that UHH today in his, in his keynotes reiterated on again. It's like having Rails serve rich HTML. So are you doing uh, some mobile hybrid work then with 
with the Turbolinks libraries for iOS and Android? Not yet. I mean, I, I do mobile stuff, but mostly as the backend provider. Actually, it's interesting because in this very app I was, I was talking about, well, I can't t- talk too much about it, but it was intended to be uh, a native iOS and, and Android app. And what happened is that Apple rejected it and now it's in the, in the process of being rewritten to, to a progressive web app with the option of later going native again when all those issues are addressed. But it made me again think of, of the majestic monolith and how it would have been better to actually start off with a progressive web app. And I could have easily done uh, sort of API specifications on the side and we would have a web app now and could take that knowledge over to, to a native app. That's interesting. I have a buddy right now who's working on mobile apps and it's a, it was a React Native app, but as if you've ever used React Native or anyone who has probably knows, you start off with React Native, but very quickly, you know, the promise of just using React Native is not actually totally true. And you usually have to shell out to Kotlin or Swift or whatever at some point. But he is in the same situation where he's working, the, the backend is a Rails API. And I, I had never heard of Rails being used like that because, you know, I'm, we're, many of us are familiar with how Basecamp builds their mobile apps. And, you know, DHH said it in the keynote today that, you know, it's a majestic monolith, but slowly and surely they are having to add in more native code with Swift and Kotlin. So it's just, I've never worked on a mobile app before. He's actually hinted that there being more native code in, in the hey.com app that's going to be released sometime this year. Well, we, we'll see. And ho- hopefully there'll be a signal versus noise blog post about it. Yeah. Even, even though they said they're doing more native, I think he said it was still only about 10% of the entire app. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those. I, I, I've been wanting to try a hybrid uh, mobile app for a long time and I just don't, I'm never on the right projects and I don't have enough personal bandwidth to, to just build something for fun and on the side. So it's got to be pretty rewarding to work on applications and with companies that that are going to play a key role in reopening the economy and doing some stuff like that. Can you can you talk about those projects at all, or or what's the, some of the more interesting things that you've been doing lately? Well, I cannot really uh, talk about this one because it's not really released uh, yet. I can say, however, that I it is a Jumpstart Pro app. Uh, here's a shout out to Chris Oliver. And that did help a lot. I mean, I had to, stuff in there. I had to to turn upside down. But it's it's the first time I tried out this the, the template, and it's been great fun, and saved us a week at least development time. Yeah, I have Jumpstart. I haven't used it yet. So if you could say anything more about your experience with that, I would be curious. Well, I even contributed some minor enhancements to to the repo lately, like adding live reloads capabilities, etc. And it's it basically has you covered in, in all areas that you can imagine. And that's for for the most part, it's it what it really is good at is is a scaffolding everything out from, from webpacker to action text to active storage to API tokens you, you can generate to uh, multi-tenancy in three different shapes like uh, you can do session-based multi-tenancy subdomain. Uh, based multi-tenancy, domain-based multi-tenancy, 
you have an uh, extra API namespace in the router that will point to API controllers, et cetera, et cetera. And I use it all. <laughs> I had to turn some things upside down because the business model, obviously, not always um, congruent, but it worked out pretty well up to now. I'm pretty impressed with the effort that Chris puts in this. I constantly see him updating things in there and it has to be a tremendous amount of work to maintain this. I'm curious if we kind of tie this back to the, the, you know, the, the conversation about Rails being a bit intimidating for somebody new to yeah. the framework and new to the language. You think a tool like Jumpstart Rails helps or is it introducing more magic? I mean, what, what, what's your take uh, on that in terms of if you came into that project uh, or if it was a new project and you began it with Jumpstart, do you think you would have found Rails itself more approachable? Actually, that is very difficult to answer in like a one-dimensional way because there, there is no yes and no here. I would definitely not recommend it to a beginner because it's so exhaustive in, in its capabilities. But it's also very well documented in what it can and cannot do, which cannot be always uh, said about Rails itself, at least in the last couple of years. It took me, I mean, one, one example is active job. I know the, the constraints of active job and why active job is as it is, but it took me two days to find out that I cannot ask an active job if it is finished. <laughs> you just cannot. And that's because, of course, there are uh, different um, interfaces to the, to the backends, but it's just not documented. And there's so many stuff also with, with active storage that, that uh, leaves you like uh, having to dig through huge heaps of, of source code. And, and that's also why I think that, well, you can, you can always go and rant about things, but it is an open source project and you can always make it better just by documenting stuff. Yeah, it's interesting because in DHH's keynote recently, I mean, that just came out today. He was talking about, I mean, you get a picture into Basecamp's approach to open source, right? They're, they're building tools. They like to own the technology by and large. And so they'll build things that they want to reuse in a new application. That's where things like active storage came from. He wanted to use it in Hay. They were doing something similar in Basecamp. They extract it, make it part of the framework so they can use it in their next project. But documentation really isn't as high on the priority list as just for internal uh, reuse of those components and technologies internal to their company, right? And then I think they'll, they'll, they'll do a pretty good job of laying at least a cursory set of documentation down, but then lean on the community to kind of go in and dig in, figure it out, and improve the documentation over time. But certainly as the framework grows, it becomes even more intimidating, right? And I could see that even as an experienced developer that's new to Ruby dropping in and trying to read source code for something like active storage is, is pretty intimidating. It's like, it's just so obtuse that, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll just go do it in Express, right? I mean, that's why that happens. Yeah, and there, there are memes floating around like with, with screenshots of, of terminals, what people are skipping when they're creating a new race project. Someone from the race core team, I can't remember his name, suggested like making a wizard-like Rails new command. And I think that would actually be a pretty good thing. Yeah, that was Andrew White, I believe. 
Yeah, I, I maybe it would be better if it were easier to like specify those kind of options, but I, I don't. I mean, you could just do Rails new dash dash help and see everything you need. And I also don't find myself like like I've seen some commands that when they're generating a new Rails app that they they remove everything and it's just the API. I mean, maybe there are just like certain golden paths that they're like, okay, if you want an API only Rails app and you don't need all this other stuff, maybe those commands just need to be flushed out a little bit more. Oh. I object because typing Rails new dash dash help covers two screens in my terminal. There's no <laughs> way telling uh, what options. And so, so no, it's, it's complex and it's, it's okay. It's, it's okay to become complex because it's a large framework that does a lot for you, but it sort of became more and more opaque for somebody who's just starting out or even me, when I start a new REST project, I go all through all these options. What do I need? What do I do, uh, not need? Do I want RSpec? Do I want Minitest? Do I want Webpack? Or do I want uh, to leave out sprockets? How do I leave out sprockets? Et cetera, et cetera. So as I said, it's, it's a complex matter and it's a gut feeling that we need to start thinking about making it more accessible again. Yeah, I mean, Avdi Grimm had a tweet recently that lamented just how difficult it is, especially for a newcomer. I think he was walking somebody new through Rails development, trying to build a simple app and get it up on Heroku. And, they've, and, and he just was banging into problem after problem. And not necessarily the most helpful error messages were, were you know, emitted either from Rails itself or even you know, from the Heroku build pipeline. So I agree. I think there's things that we can do you know, in the Rails community to make it more approachable to newcomers, whether they're experienced developers or new to development in general. I don't know if that's yeah. just documentation or wizards or what. I, I don't know where to begin, honestly. Part of my, well, I was a researcher at, at university, but obviously you have uh, teaching as well. And I, I always have, or one, one brain half, I always have in my old position as a teacher, like, how would I teach that to a third semester undergraduate? Basically, it would take two semesters course to teach the, the basics of the metaprogramming that lies beneath Rails. And that's not to say that that's a bad thing, but I, I sort of have the feeling that, that one reason why uh, all these Rails, these Rails dead yet jokes um, are floating around is because people can't see the benefit of, of taking on this behemoth of, of a framework. So I'm sort of playing the devil's advocate now I, here. I love Rails and I would do everything to make it better. But it sort of has onboarding problems. You know, in fairness, I think it, we could kind of say that the same has happened just industry-wide across a lot of different technologies or 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 stacks. I mean, front-end development, just Webpacker alone is, is pretty intimidating, especially for a new person, right? So yeah, I think in general, our industry has a challenge with making things approachable, whether you're new to programming or if you're coming in uh, with experience, you know, in some other aspect of programming. If you're, if you're just doing all back-end development or like driver development or something like that, and then you come into the web space, I can't imagine how overwhelming it must feel. Well, the Noel Rappin had a tweet in kind of response to this. He was like, there's clearly less pressure on Rails right now 
to be a newbie framework than it was in the past. So, and he speculated maybe this is because it has less of a mind share in boot camps or this or that. But I'm curious, like, do you consider Rails to be like a framework for a newbie? Because at this point, maybe for me, I don't know. I it, it's intimidating and there's stuff to like figure out. But I still think that a new developer, you know, outside of a few problems, I, I think you can still use Rails be a new developer and get a product off the ground. It's always sort of difficult to put the beginner's hat on. I was having similar thoughts when the async await syntax in JavaScript came out. I was like, what's going on? I mean, I, w- I was used to, to having promises and uh, resolving them with then and so on and so forth. And I was thinking, well, probably for people just learning JavaScript at this stage, this is totally normal. This is logical. And that's what makes this whole subject of documentation and mentoring and advocation so multifaceted. You always have to think from somebody else's perspective all of the time. And I admire stimulus reflexes documentation for this uh, trait that it's really accessible from very different angles. And that's not something that's easily done. I'm curious, Julian, did you watch any of the Railscast episode or was that, I mean, you said it was about 20, 2015 or so. I can't remember when, when Railscasts kind of uh, stopped producing new episodes. But back in the early days of Ruby on Rails, it was so crucial to, I think, building popularity for Rails. Having, mm-hmm. having a mentor that you could kind of just watch uh, when it was convenient for you. It's also why I think Go Rails and Drifting Ruby, those types of you know, teaching and tutorial websites and videos are so important to the health of a community. Mm-hmm. Well, I did watch some episode like from the back catalog. And well, more, more recently, Go Rails suddenly has, has taken uh, this role. But I have to say that I only got into, into watching Go Rails on a regular basis, like second half of last year. So I was pretty late to that party as well, but what can you do? Um, sure. As you said, the, the community lives from, from individuals who are going to rip out their arms and feet for, to make documentation and features. And that's sort of uh, the amazing thing about the Rails community, that there are so many people really all in on making it a better place to your web coding in and that's also certainly something that kept me sort of in 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 this uh, realm because i was seeing the same sort of reassertion not only from my own mentors but also from very nice people on stack overflow who, who helped me out on different occasions from very kind maintainers of open source projects where i opened issues that were no issues etc etc so this is all not, not totally, um, th- this could be different. <laughs> I, I've, I've heard different and, and seen different from, from other communities. Yeah, yeah, I think the desire to do it and do a good job of, of documenting and teaching and mentoring and things like that, I think it's inherent in Ruby. The Ruby community is, is kind of a heritage from Ruby itself, where Ruby is focused on developer happiness and expressiveness and things like that. And so I think it kind of creates this uh, environment where, I don't know, we, 
we're interested in in the beauty of the code and helping helping each other you know through the challenges that that might crop up yeah i i think it is fair to say that i mean there have been a lot of new additions to rails and complicated additions like active storage action mailbox webpacker and i i think it is fair to say that the documentation hasn't quite kept up with the new features that are getting added in but at the same time if you i mean the kind of the burden is on us as people who are using it or people who are encountering these problems that you know if if we see issues with the documentation that that's the time to raise an issue or try to you know fix it yourself and i know for many people myself included i i do not like documenting things like i'm not very good at documentation it's just not my gift but you know, the only way these issues are going to get resolved is if some people kind of step up and be like, okay, yeah, there are some things in Webpacker that we should be documenting better and let's just do it. But I find a lot of the Webpacker specifically documentation problems are because people are trying to do advanced stuff and there's not very advanced documentation for Webpacker. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. But I mean, I guess all technology is kind of plagued by, you know, poor documentation. I've been pretty fortunate on some of my projects like Stimulus Reflex. I've had some very enthusiastic volunteers that are interested in documentation. And I think that's what any good project, whether it's Rails or anything, needs. It needs people passionate about teaching others what what it is and how to use it properly. I don't know how you attract those people into the project and then teach them how to make uh, contributions. But yeah, I think it's absolutely critical for the success of any project. Yeah. Well, one thing that is very, I mean, it's not poorly documented, but I guess using it beyond the very basic cases is not very documented and that's stimulus. So Julian, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your stimulus best practices website, <laughs> because I I really like yep. it. That was my my contribution when I started looking for stimulus best practices and, and, and couldn't find decent compilation. I sort of took my own advice and said to myself, well, stop lamenting and, and do something. And I made this uh, little website uh, called betterstimulus.com. There are some examples on there that are being brought to me by others or that, that come up in, in discussions and like in, in the stimulus reflex community, but also in, in others. And I think that stimulus is, is really a great framework. And it is so little known among even JavaScript developers. And that's clearly a problem of mentorship and missing, what do you call it, advocates. And well, I don't want to have that this hat on for forever, but I thought it is a worthy endeavor to start something like this for the better of the community and also to have a crystallization point for discussion, you know? Best practices are always fluent. What can be a best practice today may be completely obsolete tomorrow. We know that Stimulus 2 is around the corner, as VHH even said today, I think. But at some point, you need to assemble some heads, some, some thinking get into a process or a habit even of seeing patterns and collecting them and, and talking about them. And that's basically what I was trying to do with that. 
Yeah. So if people want to get involved with better stimulus or they have their own ideas or they want to start discussions, is the best way to check out the repo and maybe open issues or open pull requests with their ideas of best practices? Yeah, for sure. I haven't yet had time to set up any other discussion platform. I, I don't think that it's needed, frankly. So the best way probably is to tweet at me or, or even better start a pull request or open an issue in the repo. I think we can, yeah, link to that in, in the show notes. So if you, whether you want to contribute or completely disagree with something that's on there, it would be nice to, to hear from you. So we're coming to the home stretch here. And I, Nate and I both know you through the Stimulus Reflex community. And I'm curious if you could touch on how you found Stimulus Reflex and, you know, if you're using it on client projects and things like that. I only know that it sort of jumped on me after I took a look at Phoenix Live View, which is related, as we know. And it got me thinking that this is a very promising way of architecturally modeling the, the reactive way of, of doing web applications in, in Ruby. And yes, I do use it on, at the moment, one client project. And that is a very traditional way of using it, like uh, filtering stuff and sorting stuff in, in reflexes, etc. And I'm going to use it in a, another client project, which is maybe more extravagant. It's going to be a drag and drop situation or where obviously uh, more JavaScript is going to be going on. It's going to be a sort of order book uh, implementation for B2B video conference situation where you can take items from a repertoire of goods and combine them and look at them and how do they match with each other and so on and so forth. And there will be reactive elements in, in there too. And I'm looking forward to testing out how it's going to perform in these um, non-standard ways, if, if there's such a thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how you do the drag and drop stuff and what, what your stimulus controllers are going to look like kind of associated with that around stimulus reflex. I've got plenty of ideas myself of how that, how that might happen and would be happy to pair with you when you, when you get that far along. But um, oh, sure, yeah. surely. Regardless of how you found it, I'm, I'm glad you're a member of the Stimulus Reflex community. You, you bring a lot of wisdom and interesting <laughs> ideas to it. Happy to be here. Well, we're getting, like I said, to the home stretch. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Yeah, well, I mean, you mentioned Snibbles in the very beginning, and I think it's, mm -hmm. it's maybe a nice finishing point because I actually entertain a small YouTube channels for music identity, musical identity, and Actually, that started when I was leaving university. I, as I said, I did a lot of teaching there and I had lots of material. And I thought, well, there's no such thing as really high quality screencasts. Well, there are a few, but most of it are, is, is very basic stuff. And I wanted to uh, touch on more sophisticated concepts for intermediate people. And also, like, also my, my artistic work is always like trying out boundaries of, of, of something. And I always try to, to take these, these tools to the extreme, see what they can do in a way that they're probably not meant to, to be used. 
but that's also very very interesting side of artistic exploration for me i even did a a ruby client to generate max maximus p patches that's what the software is called because this mainly a json representation and i well for for little patches it's it's it, i thought it would be interesting to have kind of like an, an emmet style cli to generate patches but that's only a side note so there's even a ruby connection here so I, i've been doing this for two years now now producing some screencasts in this area been a lot of fun due to uh, covid and stuff it's been slowed down a little bit in the past but i Hope to pick it up again very soon. This is sort of my side project, number one. Cool. So where can people find you online? Yeah, that's, uh, I think we can link to, to that in, in the show notes. At some point in my history, I became tired of inventing creative Twitter handles, etc. So I'm just at Julian Oscar Rubish at, on, on Twitter. I am Julian Rubish on GitHub and so on and so forth. I'm easy to find online. Cool. Well, we really appreciate you taking some time to hang out with us today. It's a very good uh, pleasure. Yeah. Nate, do you have anything else? No, I, you know, I, I want to, I'll offline this conversation, but I went to your Twitter profile and saw your pinned tweet about performing some of your music. I would love to hear more about that at another time. I don't know if you want to hear my music because it's very experimental. We maybe that's even my record is on iTunes. Oh, very cool. I'll have to check that out. Thank you for coming, Julian. It was an awesome conversation. Yeah, thank you too. All right. I think we're going to wrap this one up. You guys have a great day. We will see you back next week on the Ruby Blend. Sounds good. Bye bye. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode with 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.